closer to. How's that? <laughs> okay, today's reading comes from Ephesians 4. First 13 verses. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of, of the fullness of Christ. How's everybody today? Um, I saw a post that you commented on on Facebook, which is kind of what sort of triggered today's children's message. Had to do with something that we probably all know and love. It's a potato, absolutely. I love potatoes. How many of you love potatoes? Okay, potatoes. They're delicious. They're nutritious. They're full of vitamins and minerals. Hmm? They're easy to grow. They're easy to cook. You can cook them in so many ways. In fact, one of my favorite ways to cook potatoes is to bake them. I love a good baked potato, one that's so good that it just kind of melts in your mouth. And I like to load it up with butter and salt. I, I skip the sour cream for me, the butter and the salt. Sometimes I get real adventurous and I put in the cheese and the bacon and the scallions. Mm, yeah, but skip the sour cream. That ruins it. <laughs> Sorry, but I don't like sour cream. <laughs> um, potato, an awesome thing. It is a staple. I have another thing here. It's a potato. Potatoes are, are delicious. They're good. They're good for us. They're healthy. They're full of vitamins and minerals. And there's so many ways you can cook them. I like to mash these. I love mashed potatoes. They're comfort food. And again, load them up with butter and salt. Sometimes with a little gravy. Sometimes with a little um, um, stewed tomatoes. Yummy. Anybody like mashed potatoes? <laughs> um, all right. So potatoes. All right. I have another item here. 
A potato. Now I know my husband's called potato, potato, potato. He sings that weird song every now and then. Where is this going? <laughs> it's going in my belly. <laughs> okay. Anyway, potatoes. They're good for us. They're full of vitamins and full of min minerals, and they make us healthy. And you can cook them in so many ways. This is the kind I like to make french fries with. Not so healthy. But french fries are yummy, right? Like popcorn. Yummy like popcorn? Okay. All right. So potatoes. They're a wonderful thing. Now, when you eat potatoes, you eat what's called a, starts with an S. Uh, well, it is a starch, but you put it on your plate, it's a, a serving, thank you, a serving. Why do we call it a serving? It's how much it's good to eat, but maybe it's because originally someone served it to you. Maybe, I don't know. But when I was thinking about that, the potato is actually serving me. It's serving me with all those wonderful vitamins and minerals that are in it and making me healthy, right? Every time we eat it, it gives us stuff that we need to make us healthy and strong and great people, right? And happy. Potatoes make us happy. All right, so potatoes serve us and we serve God. Potatoes give us strength and health so that we can serve God. Now, potatoes and people are sort of alike in that we can serve. And our scripture passage today talks about ways that people can serve. As it says here that, um, well, it depends on the translation you look at, um, but this one says that, uh, let me get the right page. There it is. Okay. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for work and service. So just like the potato gives us nutrition, God has called us to be potatoes in the world, to give service and give nutrition and love and everything to the thing. The problem is, if I eat this potato, can it do anything else? Probably not. It's done its service to me, and that's it. It's done. But unlike a potato, God can use us. I can only use this potato one way when I use it. I mean, I could do, I could bake it, I could mash it, I could fry it, but once I use this potato, it's done, it's no more. However, God can use each one of us multiple times for multiple things. So if I choose to bake this potato and eat it, then it's gone. But God might, might use you today to bring a smile to someone's face. And he might use you today to pray for somebody. And he might use you today to give a message to somebody that builds them up just when they need it. God has called us to do many things. And tomorrow, it may be something completely different. And the thing is, God's not done with us. You ever heard them say, done like a baked potato? Well, God's not done with us. We're not baked potatoes. He's not done with us yet. And he's going to keep using us over and over and over if we just let him. And we're going to be able to give nutrition, love, joy, 
happiness to the people around us if we just let him use us. Let us be a serving to others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for potatoes. We thank you for the nutrition they give us and for the joy they give us when we eat them. We thank you that you have called us to serve and you've given us opportunities to serve, ways that are different every day. Help us to seize those opportunities to serve, to bring joy and hope and peace and love to those around, to bring the wonderful news that Jesus came, died on a cross so that we could have eternal life with you. So we thank you for that, and we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have called us to reflect you to the world. We pray that you will help us to understand what we need to, um, to do that a little bit more from today. We ask that you will work in our spirits by your spirit and transform us to look like Jesus in his name. Amen. What makes a life worth living? Okay, purpose. Identity. Companionship. Chocolate. Yeah, I mean, that helps. <laughs> because life was freely given to us, so that's why it's worth living. Yeah. Okay. So, in verse 1 of our passage today, which is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 13, the Apostle Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. How do we do that? Listening to the Holy Spirit. That's a really good answer. That covers a lot. Is there anything else? Okay, in tandem with reading the word and living it. Um, let's back up a little bit. What is the calling we have received? Make disciples? Is that what you're saying too, Barbara? To display God's glory in vessels of clay. I think that's right, but I'm not sure that we always know what that means. <laughs> Be salt and light. We, we kind of have to use a lot of metaphors, don't we? So, um, I was, this, at the beginning of this week, I was feeling really kind of overwhelmed by this book of Ephesians because it's not that long. It's only six chapters. And it's sort of, at first glance, deceptively simple. Basically, the Apostle Paul says, you've been saved by Jesus Christ to be reunited with God and each other, now go live like it. But then, you could just break this down and be like, as a prisoner for the Lord, why is Paul bringing that up again? Then, then what? Do I have to go back and read the previous three chapters? I urge you to live a life worthy, what's that, of the calling you have received. What's the calling? We've already discussed some of that, but you see what I mean. You can literally take every single verse in this book of Ephesians and 
pull it apart phrase by phrase and get probably a whole sermon out of each phrase. So Paul says this book is like pemmican. It's just hearty and chewy, and there's so much stuff packed into it. And I was feeling a little overwhelmed, so I started reading commentaries, and I wrote a whole sermon based on what I was reading in the commentaries, which I think was true. And then this morning I was like, yeah, but none of that stuff is what I need to say to this congregation. And so um, I rewrote it. <laughs> you know, I do that sometimes. Usually it's just a couple tweaks. Today it was like a full overhaul, so hopefully it makes sense. Um, but one of the things that I read in one of these commentaries was comparing Ephesians to an instruction manual. Basically saying the second half of this book is he gives you a whole lot of nuts and bolts, practical stuff to talk about how to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul could tell you that sometimes he and I have a little bit of an argument about whether the Bible is or is not actually a book of instructions, a handbook. Paul likes to call it a handbook, and I think it's more than a handbook, and I decided I was going to use this instruction manual analogy. I was going to say, you know what, maybe you're right. Maybe at least this book is a handbook. But then I thought about it, and I was like, what other handbook do you ever get that tells you what kind of person, what kind of character you have to have in order to operate the piece of equipment you just bought? Like if you buy a car, it's assumed that you're not a psychopathic maniac who's just gonna drive over people and into things. And it's assumed that you are going to be going through a licensing process. Ray can help you with that. Um, and you know, you're, if you need glasses, you're gonna wear your glasses when you're driving. All these things are assumed. They're not in the instruction manual because you just know you're supposed to do that. And the instruction manual is a do this, do this, do this, don't do this. So the book of Ephesians does give us some instructions. It starts here in verse two, but they're not the kind of instructions that you would get in a instruction manual instruction manual, um, because they're much more about who you are doing the things. So I would say that the message of this passage is a life worth living is a life of grace. We can't live the life worthy of the calling we have received without grace. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a minute, but first let's look at the first instruction here in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. How do we do that? Only by the grace of God. <laughs> Who's laughing? <laughs> um, in verse 3, he goes back to the whole unity thing that he's been talking about for two chapters. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So here are the first five things that we need to live this life worthy of the calling that we have received. Actually, these are probably the five things. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, bound together in peace, and we could say the whole thing happens with grace. 
In verses 4 to 6, he is still talking about unity. In case you had any question about whether unity among God's people is important to God, Paul's been talking about it for three chapters. In verses 4 to 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A life worth living is a life of grace that comes, that yields a life of unity. If you have a body, most likely, hopefully, you only have one spirit animating yourself, your body, and everything about you. And so Paul has been talking about the family of God as also the body of Christ, and he's saying there's one body of Christ. There's not a whole bunch of bodies of Christ. The body of Christ isn't a whole bunch of pieces all over the place. There's one body of Christ, and there's one spirit in that body, the Holy Spirit. We together, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are one entity embodying Jesus to the world. You may have heard somebody say at some point, especially if you were a Christian in the 80s, you're the only Jesus some may ever meet. And to some extent that's true. Jesus lives in each one of us as individuals, and as we conform to him through the Holy Spirit, through grace, we reflect Jesus to the world. But we really need each other to reflect Jesus more fully because we all have different gifts and we all have different personalities and we all have different ways of expressing Jesus and what Jesus is like. And this is why unity among the people of God is so important because that's how we reflect Jesus. The body of Christ isn't just some convenient catch-all phrase. It really means something. A life worth living is Jesus' life. One body, one spirit, one hope, which is reconciliation between God and God's people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There aren't any other ones, just one. So let's revisit this. We mentioned this a little bit last week, and I think we need to talk about it again for a minute, especially because we're going to be having this class about being Baptists. What do we do with the fact that, you know, it's all very well for the Apostle Paul to write, there's only one body of Christ, and for us to even say that, but there's not, right? There's Baptists and Catholics and Methodists and, and Congregationalists and all kinds of other innumerable numbers, and there's different types of Baptists. I was reading the We Are Baptists book, and some of the things that are in there that I thought were really great are really different from some other Baptist denominations that I know about. <laughs> so it's not even just about a p one particular denomination, even the denomination split. What do we do about this? What? Weave? Oh, weep. Weave or weep. <laughs> What's that? Pursue unity. Okay. Make every effort. That's very good. Very good point. So, love each other even with our differences. Historically, the way that churches have tried to handle this conundrum is that we say, yes, there's only one 
Lord, there's one body and one spirit and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, and it's ours. Yep, we got it. We have the whole thing. Well, that doesn't really work very well. Also, it's not true. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. If you, I think we can see this happening in a lot of different areas in human life, but if you have a system and it's going along and it's going along and then somebody says, you know what, this is okay, but there's something wrong here, and you point out what that thing is, some people are gonna say, oh, you're right, that is not good, and they'll go to a far, far, far extreme, focused all around that one thing, and so maybe they found some truth that's important, but they've like turned it into some other thing and it becomes the focus, and then everybody else doubles down, and they say, no, no, we're not gonna have anything to do with that thing. And so both groups end up missing out. One group does not get a chance to grow and improve and learn and become more righteous, and the other group misses all the good things that they had in the beginning because they've separated themselves from it. God doesn't want this for his family, but I'm pretty sure that is how almost every church split has happened. No matter what, if we belong to Jesus, we are still God's family, but we need to live worthy of the calling we have received. We need to make every effort, as Lorna says, and the calling, in this case at least, is to be the one body of Christ, to look like the family of God, loving the world to life the way God does. So let's talk about worthiness. Worthiness basically means it's worth it. It has worth. It's of good quality. We want to have good quality lives that people can say, oh, those people that follow Jesus, they're quality people. So, back to humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. All of these things make a difference to how we follow the instructions that are going to follow this. If we move to the next section of Ephesians and obey all the rules to the letter, but we do it and just kind of gloss over humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace, we're going to make a mess. And I think this is behind a lot of what's happening in the church now and what has happened in the church historically. Our spirits have to be formed in humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace, or if they're not, we are not going to exhibit Jesus' life, and we are not going to live a life worthy of the calling we have received because the worth of our lives is about the quality, and that, is not, that doesn't come about by actions. That comes about by what's inside and where those actions are coming from. I suspect, because honestly, I never even really noticed verse 2. I've been a Christian since I was four, and I've read the Bible all the way through a whole bunch of times, and I've read Ephesians, and I even memorized part of it. Not chapter four, though. And I never noticed humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. At least, I never paid attention to them. 
But those are the keys. And I think when we skip the spiritual or character formation, we, in any part of the Bible, anytime we try to obey the Bible without those things, we become really legalistic jerks. If I obey a rule out of a sense of duty or a sense of fear, but I am either really proud of myself and how well I'm following that rule, or I refuse to let anyone know that I'm having trouble following that rule, that's a lack of humility. And if I force the rule on other people harshly with no grace and no wiggle room and no like paying attention to their circumstances or no offering of their compa of compassion to them and if i then i am not gentle and if i'm impatient with them for not getting on board right away and how come you're still struggling with the same thing we've been talking about this for years then i'm not patient and if I don't really care about them, I just want to get numbers, butts in the pews, or some kind of group that's marching in lockstep, all doing the right things, then I'm not loved. I'm not loving. I'm just obeying a rule. I'm not obeying God. This also is true, love, the love piece really is important for all of this because I can be unloving to people, but I can also be lacking love for God. Maybe I'm only obeying because I'm afraid of God or because I grew up this way and this is what I have to do, so whatever. Then there's no love there either. There needs to be love this way. Or I can have humility and I can recognize I'm not always going to get it right and I can't get it right by myself. I need the Holy Spirit to help me. So then if it turns out that I need to correct you because I have the humility knowing that I also mess up, I can be gentle with you because you also need the Holy Spirit's help. We all need the Holy Spirit's help. I can be patient with myself and I can be patient with you as we work together to overcome our sin and to work out any conflicts that we might have together <coughs> or even sometimes rebellion against God's ways. I can care about and love you as a person because Jesus died for both of us, and we're family. And we can deal with our differences peacefully. But none of this stuff is going to happen in me or in any of you without grace. We all need grace. And the way that we tap into grace, the way that we come to our, um, the way that we come to our next instructions will be affected by how much we tap into God's grace. But hang on a second. In verse 7, it says, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. 
what? We get different amounts of grace? What the heck? <laughs> so this week, interesting timing, I got an email devotional from Sky Jatani that I subscribe to. And his email was entitled, Grace is More Than Forgiveness. And in this devotional, he says, We hear God declare that he is compassionate and gracious, and our abbreviated understanding of grace causes us to interpret this as a statement of God's forgiveness toward our sins. God is certainly forgiving, but we must not reduce compassionate and gracious to merely the forgiveness of sins. It's not only forgiveness. The Lord is proclaiming much, much more. Dallas Willard offers this helpful correction to our vision of grace. He says, grace is not just about forgiveness. If we had never sinned, we would still need grace. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Everything about being part of God's family happens through grace. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul said, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul's not contradicting himself. He's not saying, you're only here through grace, and also there's work for you to do. I mean, he is kind of saying that, but he's not saying that those are two different things. He's saying, we are rescued, we're forgiven by God's grace, but God's grace doesn't stop there. Grace is what makes us able to do good works. Grace makes us able to live in unity with God's people. Grace forms the character of God in our spirits. And, here's where verse 7 comes in, grace gives us spiritual gifts. We're not going to talk a whole lot about spiritual gifts today because that's not really what this chapter is about, and we've talked about it before. But this is where the apportioning comes in. We all have all the grace of God we need for our salvation and for us to live the lives that God has made us to live that represent Jesus Christ in the world. God doesn't apportion forgiveness and unity and power to live humbly, gently, patiently, lovingly, peaceably. Those are all family traits. But in a family, you can take after somebody in your family and still have a slightly different personality or slightly different talents or do slightly different things. And this is what, God, what Paul is talking about God doing here. God does apportion the grace of his gift because he doesn't want us all to be the same. If we were, we wouldn't need each other. And then that rules out the whole unity thing, the body thing, the family thing, which is the whole point of this book of Ephesians and super important to God. We, we read Jesus' prayer about unity among his people in our responsive reading. In verse 8, Paul quotes this verse from Psalm 68, 18. This is why he says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people, which sounds really weird. And it's like, why are you telling this verse in here, Paul? Another translation, the Kingdom New Testament says, when he went up on high, he led bondage itself into bondage and he gave gifts to people. Captivity and bondage is one of those powers we've been talking about. It's not really a demon, it's a spiritual 
power that is in effect in our world because we humans allowed sin in. But it's not something that God wants for us. And so Paul is quoting this psalm to say, Jesus made slavery a slave. We are not slaves anymore in Christ. Jesus gave gifts to people. This is a callback that Paul is using intentionally. He's calling back to earlier Old Testament stories where God takes his place as king of his people triumphantly. The two things that this psalm refers to are the law being given on Mount Sinai and the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. And Paul uses this imagery to help his readers catch a glimpse of what Jesus has done in the spiritual realm. Remember, this is kind of an important like subplot in Ephesians, that there are spiritual powers around that don't necessarily have our best in mind, that God is putting, has put Christ over, and as we are seated with Christ, we are also over. And so Paul is saying here, he, Jesus has defeated his spiritual enemies, and like a king would when he wins a war, gives gifts. Here, we've won. Have a gift. This is the picture that Paul is painting for us. Jesus, in rising from the dead, took captive the spiritual forces that oppress us and, through his spirit, gave us gifts to serve the church. The gifts that Paul names here are specifically leadership gifts, prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists and apostles. And he's not saying those people are better than anybody else. And he's not saying those are the only people that get spiritual gifts. He's reminding us that there are some people that God has set apart to help everybody else in the power of the Holy Spirit to live out their gifts from God and to, be, to help be humble and gentle and patient and loving and peaceful. The gifts are from God. Even these leadership gifts, people with this type of gift or grace are available to the family to help. But also, Paul points this out because he wants to remind those people, people with leadership gifts, these, the point of these gifts is the Holy Spirit gave them to you so that you can help the rest of the family. They're not yours. It's not because you're awesome. It's not for your power and your glory. It is for the family. These gifts carry a greater responsibility. They carry the responsibility for basically teaching God's family values, but also a greater responsibility for living them and being an example of them. And this is a reminder in this passage. Paul is reminding us before he gets to the, the more practical rules for the whole church, he's saying, don't forget pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets and uh, evangelists. You must also exercise these gifts with humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. The reason that these gifts are given to some people is to equip all of God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're going to talk more about maturity next week, spiritual maturity, maturity in God's family. For now, just remember, a life worth living is all about grace. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace. We really, literally cannot do it without you. Um, I pray that we will be more aware of our need for grace this week, but also more aware of the way you come through for us and the ways that you're changing us, the the ways that you're growing us and that people are meeting you through us. We pray that you will bring us to greater unity with each other and with you. In Jesus' name, amen.